a rope is sort of, it's like a vine intertwining. And if you just have two elements to that rope, that's fine. But if you have many elements to that rope, that rope will get stronger. Friendship is a lot like that as well. Welcome to Social Fabric. In this program, we will bring you conversations with people who discuss their passion and their interaction with the community. We explore how different jobs, careers or achievements can inspire us to make small changes to improve our lives within our communities. If you would like to be interviewed or know someone that has a good story to share, email us at info at socialfabric.ie. Enjoy. This week's guest is Ross Thompson. Ross is a volunteer first responder and an entrepreneur with a passion for the great outdoors. He's a keen kayaker and an ultra runner. This is my conversation with him. We're going to have a chat about life and certainly are and everything Another else. Another chat. <laughs> so before anything, uh, just um, just a little bit of background, just to give me an idea of who we're talking to, so people know um, who we're talking to. Ross Thompson, uh, father of four, married to Wendy, uh, self-employed, sales and marketing guru, I like to think of myself. Um, very much an outdoors man, big into the outdoors, um, and try and fit that in with everything I do, with, with friendships, with family, and yeah, that's it. Yeah, and uh, just to go back a little bit to the early years then, growing up, where did you grow up? And Yeah, grew up in Booterstown, South County, Dublin, uh, back in the 70s, eventually shipped off to boarding school uh, in the early 80s, uh, we thought it was a reform school at the time, but uh, yeah, that was a good experience. Um, it kind of knocked the edges off you, and uh, you got to meet people from different parts of the country and friends for life. So, yeah, because um, the, one of the questions I have for you about the boarding school—not everybody has a great memory of boarding school—but yeah. you, you seem to carve the nice uh, life there and the great yeah. friendships. I guess at the time, you know, there was there was a lot of long, miserable Sunday afternoons when there was not, not an awful lot to do. But the rest of the time, boarding school, there was constant sports, constant crack. It was it was a different time in Ireland. You know, it was in the the deep parts of the of uh, well, I wouldn't say recession. Ireland never had any sort of boom. Mm. So back in the eighties, we were, you know, there wasn't an awful lot of opportunity. But we were fortunate enough uh, that my my father had the wherewithal to put us through boarding school, and he had gone to the same school. So. The friends that you've made there, I still have them very, very tight, close-knit friends. You wouldn't see them, you know, that much during the year, but when you do see them, it's just like, you know, 30 years ago. Yeah, that's, you were quite young when you went to boarding school. Then. I had just turned 11, yeah. Wow. So, uh, just turned 11. Uh, I had to repeat half a year just to get closer to my age group, and ended up, ended up being barely 17 when I left school. Ah, so a good yeah. six years, that's a, that's a long time. And, yeah. Uh, and so, what? Apart from the wet Sunday afternoons, what's uh, what's your fondest memories then of those uh, those years? Fondest memories. Um, well, I, I was fortunate enough to just come back from a thirty-year reunion, 
uh, about a month ago. Okay. And there was lots of lots of memories, lots of laughs. I think the one of the one of my most striking memories of boarding school was to, I was involved with the canoeing team, and uh, you started off being given a paddle and a fiberglass kayak or canoe. No wetsuits back then. Uh, you eventually, you know, started a sport and you, you figured out that you liked it and then you started to pick up little bits of gear after that. It wasn't like today where you're mm. all decked out straight away in mm. the latest dry suit and spray skirts and helmets and all that straight away. So it was very much piecemeal stuff back mm. then. You were lucky if you had a Quinsworth plastic bag <laughs> wrapped around your, your arms or something to keep the water off you. But... Um, what struck me about the canoe team was that it was very much led by the older guys and they you know, weren't necessarily qualified sports instructors or training instructors, but they put a regime in place mm. that you'd start off the season uh, you know, in January and you'd be running a three-mile loop of the lake. You'd be doing all sorts of exercises like you know, in the shape of a cross, you'd rotate your, you know, people can't see this, but you'd, you'd put your arms straight out from either side and you see how long you could rotate your arms. And uh, that, would, that would be the measure of how good you were going to be as a canoeist. But the interesting thing was that, you know, I started off as an 11-year-old kid in the, canoe t- in the canoe club, eventually made it to the canoe team. And as you, you know, went up the ranks, I became captain of the canoe team with a good pal of mine, John, who passed away, unfortunately, last summer. But they couldn't pick out who was going to be the one captain, so they made both of us the captain. But we, we carried on that, that, that training regime right through and brought all you know, the younger guys up. And eventually you'd get on the lake and um, you'd train all winter. You'd hit the race season and we would mop up all the races. Uh, and there was the All-Ireland uh, Liffey Descent. And the Rockwell team had won that, that race for 17 years in a row. Mm-hmm. Nobody could touch us. Uh, and we didn't have a coach. We had a, a, a PE teacher that used to drive us around the country. But we had no coach, so we were very self-driven, self-motivated. And it was interesting, I met a guy about two months ago uh, through business, and we both figured out that we were from Rockwell. We figured out that he was on the canoe team. And he described exactly that training regime. He was about 10 years you know, younger than myself. But he described that uh, that training regime was still there when he was in Rockwell. So it was kind of nice so to was a winning formula. Was it, it seemed to work. And it was very much of a, a tribe then. That became very much, a, yeah. Like so that. even though the school was very much a rugby school, the canoe team quietly, confidently got on and mopped up, mopped up trophies around the country and races around the country. That's you know? great. What we do with this conversation, we always put a bit of music in and um, one of the choices you have is uh, Blondie, Heart of Glass, Blondie Heart of Glass, yeah, so that was, I think, 1978. I was seven years old. Big thing back in the 70s was, you know, how we were fed our music, obviously, was the radio and cassettes and vinyl. But visually, top of the pops on a Thursday night was a big thing. And my dad was big into into music and into bands. Uh, you know, I thought he was an outfit at that stage, but he was probably only as mid-40s as I am now. But big highlights of the week at the Thompson House was Top of the Pops. And we'd all sit around and uh, Blondie was in the studio and uh, Heart of Glass eventually went to number one, I think. I don't know how many weeks it was there. Uh, but I remember seeing the video for Heart of Glass and, uh, and just that opening um, sound from, from, the, from the track and going, wow, this is such a cool song. Uh, but I only you know remember that in, in recent weeks 
as I was searching for songs to scramble, what, what would be a memory? And I said, God, Heart of Glass really you know, sets, sets the 70s off, so the disco 70s for me. So that was my, uh, my choice. I'm going to stay with uh, friendship for a minute, just uh, because obviously you cherish your friendships and your friends and, um, and it ranks quite high in your priorities. Very much uh, so, yeah. Tell me a bit about your friendships, what, what does it mean to you? What, what, what? Um, I think friendships, I was trying to think of that this morning, you know, what, what, what's important to me. And obviously family and friendships, and friendships are family as well. If you can imagine a rope, you know, hanging off the back of a sailing boat, a rope is sort of different it's like a vine intertwining. And if you just have two, two elements of that rope, that's fine. But if you have many elements of that rope, that rope will get stronger. So mm. friendship is a lot like that as well. Mm. You know? So for me, friendship is very important. Um, I have an old saying, no matter what you're doing with friends, you never let them down. You always commit. You always see through on your commitments. Uh, and you also include everybody as well, you know. So yeah, and then that obviously shows with the, you know keeping in touch with people after thirty years. Not everybody yeah. does those, you know. A yeah. lot of people go to the reunions, but maybe it's the only time they ever see each other. You know, yeah. while you do keep in touch with. And it takes effort, but I don't see it as effort. Like people yeah. would say to me, "Oh, geez, Russ, you're great for keeping in touch," and but you know these days communication is so easy. You know, you're driving along on, on a, a motorway down the country, and you go, "Oh, I'll give so and so a call." And you'll call someone and say, the blue, have a catch-up, good conversation, you'll arrange to meet for lunch two months later or something like that. It doesn't take an awful lot of effort, but, mm. but some people are into it and, and are, are good at it. I would like to think I'm good at keeping in touch with people, and I think people appreciate that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And you mentioned family, obviously, is, is very important. Um, tell me yeah. a bit about your family life in general, before um, your family, your current family, your yeah, family. Um, so I'm the youngest of three kids. Uh, growing up in the 70s and 80s, um, you know, father was uh, self-employed, mother was a uh, stay-at-home mom. Uh, unfortunately, they separated in the early 80s in a time when Irish people weren't separating. There was no divorce. So it's quite an unusual thing. Uh, at the time, yeah, it was horrendous. You know, very uh, traumatic time for, for me, for my sister, for my brother for my parents obviously um, but you know in hindsight I think they were very brave to take that leap and say look this is not working for whatever reason they had their reasons um, but uh, I think you know in hindsight that was probably a good thing but they always got on you know it took a bit of time but they, they got on reasonably well after that unfortunately my dad isn't with us anymore but it brought it brought the important things for me when I you know eventually met my wife she was also from uh, a divorced family. And I think we were singing from the same hymn sheet from the very start when we, 
we've, when we started dating and we started getting a little bit more serious and thinking about you know spending the rest of our lives together we were really certainly thinking from the same uh, singing from the same hymn sheet because we had the same experience when we were growing up from parents that couldn't be together anymore and is yeah. that uh, i mean you have four kids now yeah um nice spread of age you know to the youngest step but is that something always in the back of your mind or is it just you're just the like the way the life you leave uh, you um, lead it's you're happy there's a happy oh, family and it's all in the back of my mind well uh, i think for me you know if you're talking about marriage and relationship i've always said if you can pour more into your marriage than you take out and if both of you are doing that you know it's got a great chance yeah. but if one side is taking out a little bit more than they're pouring in you know it's a little bit unbalanced so yeah. i think communication is really important don't don't put your head in the pillow uh, after an argument or bef- you know yeah. or a disagreement or you know stressful times give each other a bit of space yeah, yeah i think i think that's important communication yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely just uh, before we move on to the next uh, subject i want to ask you another song you picked uh, Fantastic song by Simple Minds. Don't you forget about me. Yeah, the reason I picked this was going back to boarding school again. A big thing in the eighties was bletto gasters or ghetto blasters. Uh, we used to call them bletto gasters. But uh, before the before the age of the Walkman and the MP3 and the, you had these huge big you know stereos that guys used to lug around the place with that with cassettes. Eat, yeah, cassettes that used to eat batteries. And we had a, a guy. A guy in the canoe team and his father uh, was based out of Hong Kong. His family were based out of Hong Kong. They were an Irish family. And every midterm or Christmas, he'd go back to Hong Kong. Of course, electronics in Hong Kong were dirt cheap. Well, reasonably. Mm. So every time he went back, he would take an order for uh, a ghetto blaster. And um, I put an order in, I think it was £50 at the time. So it was a lot of savings there. And he came back with this double cassette ghetto blaster. For the first time, you could record, or I could record from cassette to cassette and make mixtapes on the fly. Nice. So um, I arrived back to boarding school after a, a summer break, and one of the guys had this humongous uh, ghetto blaster. And on that was Don't You. He was playing Don't You Forget About Me by Simple Minds. And I just thought, God, what a, a great anthem uh, for the 80s. I went on to go to my first rock concert in Crow Park, in I think it was 85, 86, it was 86, I was 15 years old and it was my first rock concert and it was uh, Simple Minds, it had a great lineup of support acts, you know, complete with thunder and lightning over the stage when uh, Simple Minds mm-hmm. came on and it was just, yeah, that when that blasted out, uh, it was amazing and I think that the song is timeless. For me, it was definitely a coming of age, you know, young teenager, finding your own feet, going out, going to festivals, or, you know, what, what was a festival back then was a rock concert that went on from 2pm to 11pm. And, and that song was in the, from the movie The Breakfast Club, which pretty much had the same uh, message coming to age, you know, so if anybody hasn't seen that, Think of the t-
you mentioned the canoeing and uh, the running clubs, there was the rugby yeah. and everything in, yeah. in, in, in uh, Rockwell. Yeah. And obviously you carry that through to now, like you, fitness and, and leisure are very important in your daily life. What, what, what do you do in terms of fitness at the moment, you know, um, in, in your mid-40s? and Yeah, so for, so was kayaking for years. Um, so when I left school, rather than long-distance racing, I went into extreme whitewater kayaking and that led me around the globe to different rivers and different continents. And I was also surfing as well, and that brought me to different places as well. And then uh, about eight years ago, I had a kayaking accident, I suppose. I blasted my head off a rock and uh, obliterated my eardrum. So I said, God, what am I going to do now? Because I was always, you know, always into adrenaline sports and just always doing something. So I started running, and I used to be a, a sprinter in school, mm. and was on the relay team and all that sort of stuff. So I started running again, and then a buddy of mine said to me, oh, you should do a... You know, I started doing a bit of cycling and amongst our, our friend group we started cycling and doing a bit of running and someone said we should do an adventure race. I started adventure racing um, and it was really just to take part. It wasn't very at a competitive level. And then as you know we started doing further distances and I said oh I try. Uh, a lot of it was trail, trail running. We're very lucky to be able to open up the door and run into the hills or down by the coast here. But I said oh, I'll have a crack at a marathon. I'll do one marathon. So I started training for the Dublin Marathon. And um, another buddy of ours, George, who had done many marathons, was sort of saying, okay, well, I'll run it with you and we pick a time and run with it. So George is very generous with his time. So two weeks before the Dublin Marathon, this was six years ago, I think, two weeks before the Dublin Marathon, I said, this is how naive I was, I said, I better go out and make sure I can run the distance. So I went out one morning and I said to Wendy, I said, look, I'll be back in a couple of hours. And I ran out across the Sally Gap and I looked at my watch and I said, God, I've done 26 kilometres. Uh, and a marathon is 42 kilometres, so I still had to get back. So I came back, eventually got back to Greystones after doing 56 kilometres. <laughs> took off my boots or my runners and said, right, I can do the marathon now. This was two weeks before the marathon. And as any marathon runner knows, you're not supposed to do that at all. But anyway, myself and George, uh, he got me across the line at 4.08 at my first Dublin marathon. And which I thought was going to be my only marathon. I've done eight of them now as of last weekend and heading for an ultra now in a couple of weeks. That's great. So running, it's uh, middle age. I, I good, think, good exercise to get you out. I think it's handy because it's a sport. You can open the door, go and do it and come back. Whereas, Anywhere, whatever, it doesn't matter where you are. Yeah, you can. all you need is a pair of runners. Um, whereas you know, golf takes a bit of time to get to the golf club and get around and kayaking would take a lot of time and sailing would take a lot of time and cycling takes a lot of time I think bang for book or you know running is is good and particularly on the trails it's a nice soft ground and, and it's great it's very social because at our age we're running at a certain speed where you can have a good chat yeah. and share a lot of stories and bounce a lot of and that's the, the obviously uh, as well as being fitness thing that keeps you fit but it's obviously a passion and, and it's part of the leisure your leisure time with your yeah. friends just yeah it's very, very social it's more yeah. social than it is anything else the, the you know it, it's very much about the social and the, the relationships rather yeah. than the actual fitness yeah. the fitness just happens it's like yeah, you know people say oh I need to get active I need to get fit but by just going out and being active that's going to happen anyway you don't need you just go out and do it. There's no end point. You just start it. I'm going to ask you how you turned that into your business in a minute, but uh, the song you have, uh, one of the songs you have, it's um, Dire Straits, Money for Nothing. 
Money for nothing. Yeah, I guess it comes from a time, again, it's not necessarily my favourite song, but going back to the 80s again, when that song came out, the first time I had heard it was just shortly before, about 1985, Sting and Dire Straits at Live Aid. And Live Aid, for anybody that remembers it, was a massive global phenomenal when global phenomenals didn't, uh, didn't happen. And Bob Geldof and the rest of the team you know, were going to raise awareness and a lot of money for, for the poor unfortunates in Ethiopia. And I just remember that opening you know, riff of Money for Nothing and Sting singing the intro. And it went on to be a massive, massive song. But I suppose it, it brings you back to Live Aid and what that meant for the world at the time. People getting involved, uh, rock stars getting involved, raising awareness, raising a lot of money, but particularly raising awareness about the famine in Ethiopia. And we look now at Ethiopia, you know, 30 odd years on, and uh, you know, they've got, a, they've got the fair share of problems, still food is a problem, but they've got an economy now. Uh, so it's amazing so, how, worth. yeah, it's, it has worked. With regards to your current job, and you said it before, it, you you turn your passion to your job, which makes getting yeah. up in the morning a lot easier. Yeah, than, definitely. Than it is to go to an office or whatever. Yeah. Might. So what what have you done in the last few years to to do that? How how did you shape that from your fitness well, and your leisure and your outdoors yeah. into what you do today? <clears throat> I suppose it just grew before my very eyes so I, I started out I left school and be, did an apprenticeship and became a painter and decorator and that enabled me to work anywhere so that was easy to move around I worked in Ireland I worked for did my apprenticeship with a guy from Bray he, he was a hard taskmaster and it wasn't easy but I got a good trade from him and I went on to work for myself uh, went to the States, uh, set up my own business over there. What age were you when you went to the States? I was 22. Okay, yeah, so 22 good when I went time. to the States, yeah. So I was able to work my way around, and I guess what I was doing for a business wasn't the most important thing. It was who I was doing business with, so mm. be it, you know, painting people's houses, or eventually I came back to Ireland after being in the States, got involved with an old family business that my dad had, which was janitorial supplies, and, it, you know... Not the most glamorous thing in the world, toilet paper and hand towels and detergents, but it fed our family for many years. Um, 
and the characters you meet in the different elements of business you could be in a dental surgery mm -hmm. one one day you could be talking to the caretaker of a national school the next day, next day or you could be in a in a science lab in a university mm -hmm. the next day so eventually um that business was tipping along nicely it was distribution business so my wife being from California would be back and forth to California over the years and people would say, oh, you know, hasn't spotted anything in America. And I said, yeah, I've spotted many things in America that I could bring back to Ireland, but nothing that struck me. So I, eventually my sister-in-law gave us uh, some water bottles uh, for our kids back about eight, nine years ago, 2000, 2008, 2009. She gave us these water bottles uh, for our children. And I just thought they were the best thing. It was called Contigo. And... Uh, I said, God, this is great. These aren't in Ireland. And they were BPA-free. They were non-toxic. They didn't spill. Mm. But they were also reusable. And uh, I said, God, it'd be great if people just do away with all these plastic bottles. And this was way before anybody was thinking about this. And I said, God, reusable product, best way to recycle. A safe product and, you know, a quality product. It wasn't cheap. So I contacted the company. And I said, uh, I'm Ross from Ireland. Uh, I'm interested in your product. It's not in Ireland. Do you have a distributor in Ireland? And the voice at the other end of the phone said, well, we're looking for somebody in the UK and Ireland. Conversations went on and started doing that. So they said, how many containers do you want? <laughs> and I said, uh, well, how many are in a container? And they said, oh, about 20,000. <laughs> and I said, do you do half containers? I had one single customer at this stage. Right. Um, so we got a container in and I went knocking on doors of sports shops or the outdoor shops I do, used to deal with. I went to Great Outdoors in Dublin where I used to buy my wetsuits and my kayaks. And I said, hey, lads, I've got a, f a fancy bottle here from the States. I want to make a business of it. It's really nice. And they said, oh, yeah, give us 12 of those. So that was, <laughs> uh, that was 12. That was 12. Uh, knocked <laughs> off it. Uh, but I really enjoyed the reaction that I got from people. And, you know, I, I had no money at the time. I had all my bank borrowings tied up in bottles in my warehouse and I just had to go out and sell and very soon people caught on to it and people got behind it and uh, within a short space of time it became quite a viral product uh, but you know you still had to keep your shoulder to, do, to the wheel mm. and at the same time I had the rights to the UK market as well so every couple of weeks I'd be back and forth back and forth mm. to the multiples in the UK and there's an old sales adage that uh, you know most sales people give up after the third call basically took me four years to get into my first multiple. Right. So don't give up. Don't What had happened then was I started to have great relationships in the outdoor industry in Ireland and in the UK. And I'd be going to trade shows and people, you know, retailers and suppliers would you'd be out having a few beers. Like business never stopped. Uh, but it was a nice way to do business and I really enjoyed it and I had a great passion for it. And then people would say, oh, listen, we don't have representation. A brand would come to me and say, we don't have a representation in Ireland. Would you think of taking on our brand? And a lot of the stuff I would say, no, I'm not interested in this. I'm not interested mm -hmm. in that. And bit by bit, I would pick up different accessories of two tent brands that we got off the ground. And it was very much no representation here. Nobody knew mm -hmm. about it. So it wasn't just about walking in and taking an order. Mm -hmm. You really had to build the brands up. Mm -hmm. and you really had to believe in the products. And about a year ago, I got a call out of the blue from... Uh, guys from Italy, they had two brands, uh, big brands in, in Europe, Salewa and Dinafit, um, both mountaineering and cross-country skiing, ultra-trail running brands. Mm. They didn't have representation in Ireland. And I said, yeah, look, I like your gear, let's do it. And I've, at the same time, I have great relationships with the retailers. They know they can trust me. 
and it's a good fit and I love it and it doesn't seem like work yeah. uh, it'd be nice if I could earn a few quid out of it but <laughs> it puts bread and butter on the table and really that's yeah. that's the most important thing for me that's great the song that you picked that I put at the end of this um, chapter is uh, George On My Mind by Ray Charles and yeah. going back to the US of A yeah what, uh, what's that song about? Georgia, for me, it, it was written back in, back in the 30s, I believe, and I did a bit of research on it. By, it was written by uh, Hogar Carmichael and Stoney Gorell. I hope they've got their names right. They, they wrote it back you know, before the war. But obviously Ray Charles went on to, to, to cover that song, and that was uh, a massive hit at the time. But what Georgia on my mind represents, back in the late 80s when I started to drive, uh, my mother would give me the keys of her little Opel Corsa and she said, look, there you go, go out with your friends or whatever. And we were quite respectful of that, you know, it was my mother's car. We weren't crazy and you weren't going too fast in an Opel Corsa <laughs> anyway. But but her one um, request was that if she wanted to go out with her friends, and I'd drop her off and I'd pick her up and I said, no problem. So I was talking about this to her yesterday now. Unfortunately, she's in a she's in a nursing home at the moment with dementia, but she could remember this story. And I said, do you remember me dropping you off to, I think it was Carmi. Carmel uh, was her, f- her friend and they'd all head off with their boxes of wine little <laughs> bladder in a bl- bladder of, a, of wine in a box with a little with a little uh, uh, tap on it uh, because you know in the mid eight late 80s there wasn't an awful lot of money going around so socializing was very much done in each other's houses so all these group of, of women would meet and have a ball and I'd be dropping them off with their boxes of Matthias Rose or <laughs> Blue Nun or whatever it was and I'd go back you know I'd finish up with my friends or drop my friends home and I'd head back to pick up my mammy at about 11.30 at night. But, you know, I would never get out and home by midnight because they'd be singing. Uh, and they're all war babies. And they came from the clippings of tin, as my mother used to say, they'd survive on anything. But they had great social support for each other and if one of them wasn't feeling well, they'd, they'd rally round. But ultimately, they'd be singing Georgia at the end of the night. Um, and I just think it's such a beautiful song and Ray Charles sings it really well. Georgia Georgia The whole day through Just an old sweet song Keeps Georgia on my mind. Georgia on my mind. I said, Georgia. Georgia. A song of you. Comes as sweet and I want to ask you about uh, another thing you've been involved for the last few years uh, and I think it's a fabulous um, community thing, uh, the first responders. Yeah. First of all, uh, tell me about who are the first responders, what, what, right. what is it? So first responders are community first responders. It was started in Shalala, in a small village in Shalala in County Wicklow. Wicklow is split down the middle by a mountain range. So it's not easy for you know, emergency services ambulance to get to more remote parts of Wicklow. 
couple of guys got together and set up a community first responder scheme, which is training people up in CPR and um, how to deal with patients with chest pain uh, or cardiac arrest. So in other words, the idea would be that if somebody called 999 or 112, the call centre at the other end would be keying in certain for certain words. So if you called up and said, oh, I've got my mother here, uh, she's got a pain in her chest and she's lost, she's sweating and she's shortness of breath, that would all be keyed, keyed into a system at the other end. And certain keywords would trigger a response to a mobile phone. So a community first responder would be armed with a bag, with a defibrillator. Uh, we used to have very various different masks and oxygen tanks. We don't do the oxygen anymore. But more importantly, they'd be trained up in CPR. And the idea would be that they'd be in their community. They would receive a text with the location, the, the, the added response to, to go to and the the complaint of the patient and the idea would be that you could be there within three minutes mm. of of a call coming in so i you know that started in shalala it soon spread to ev- most most small towns in, in wicklow and i spotted it in the wicklow times that the first responders about 10 years ago the first responders were having an agm and i knew about it in greystones and i said god wouldn't that be a great thing to get involved with from a community spirit <clears throat> excuse me community spirit point of view you know, I wanted to give back to the community. I can't teach or coach football, can't teach basketball or GAA, but I said, I'll, have, I'll throw a hand at this. So I got involved, got trained up. Uh, I go on a rota three nights a week. I used to do five nights a week. Eventually went on to be an instructor. We train up new people. It basically means that you'd be on call, say on a Sunday night from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. on a Monday morning, and you can get a call or a text at any time to respond to a call out in the community. It could be somebody with uh, passing out unconscious chest pain. And the idea is that you would get to that person within three, four minutes. We also respond to people that have symptoms of stroke. And usually, you know, not too far behind you, you'd have an advanced paramedic arriving in a, a little Jeep or you might be waiting for an ambulance. Maybe so possibly. it's that very important <clears throat> first five minutes. Yeah, yeah, it's happens. key. It really is key, uh, particularly with... with um, chest pain or cardiac arrest, you know, a person's uh, chance of survival are really greatly increased. And has it, uh, has it moved across Ireland or is it still just in Wicklow? Or is it, uh... No, it's very much moved across Ireland to different communities, yeah, different counties. Um, okay. Not quite sure of the uptake in, in different, you know, the amount of groups in different counties, but Wicklow is well represented. I know Tipperary is well represented. Some of the bigger counties and cities, obviously it's much more difficult, but then again, they would be closer to... Uh, you know, accident and emergency and ambulance services, so it's not as bad. So it's more for the remote the remote areas. areas yeah. Yeah. And uh, if people want to get involved, where, well, how, what's the best way for people um, to get involved? Well, certainly for Greystones, you just search for the Community First Responders Facebook page. That's a good place to start. It's pretty easy. Is there a website? Do you know? Uh, we don't have a website uh, okay. as such. Um, but search First Responders Ireland. CFR Ireland, Community CFR. First Responders Ireland, okay. and that'll link you to the different groups around the country. Um, we also do a lot of training in schools. Uh, we get involved with different community groups. We'd have the Irish Heart Foundation Day where we'd set up a little gazebo and we'd have out the mannequins and the defibrillators. And we'd take the mystery out of defibrillators. You know, there's a lot of them hmm. around different towns in Ireland, but people might be a little bit unsure. Oh, I better not touch one of those if, if, you know, if somebody collapses in front of you. So what we're trying to do is take the mystery out of it. Basically you switch the defibrillator on, big green button that says mm. power. You turn it on, the machine tells you what to do. It yeah. says, you know, take out the pads, 
place them on the patient's bare mm. chest and you follow the prompts of the machine. CPR then, you know, compressions and breaths, pretty easy, straightforward, 30 compressions, two short breaths, 30 compressions, two short breaths, put the defibrillator on, switch, you know, put the pads on, switch it on and follow the prompts. It's pretty straightforward, but to get the message across that it's, it's not that hard, but any intervention at all can, be, can yeah. have a great help for people's chance life. of survival, yeah. I'm going to ask you a couple of more things about the responders, but um, before that, I think one of my favourite songs of all time, Prince, Sign of the Times. Yeah, yeah, I was a huge Prince fan, as a lot of us were back in the 80s. And for me, Sign of the Times, I think it was 87. There was a lot of things going on in the world in, in 87, you know. Reagan and Gorbachev, the Cold War, the, the mm. nuclear threat was very real. And, and for us in school, you know, it wasn't unusual to have those conversations with your English teacher about, you know, shelters and nuclear fallout. And, you know, then you had the AIDS epidemic and the fallout of that and what that meant for the world. And that was, you know, for teenagers, you know, it wasn't such, you know, people were very aware of it. And um, I think. Prince, you know, brought a lot of those messages across in that song. And mm. <clears throat> the visuals on that video, it was just words flashing at you. And that, you know, that audio, that track, and that visuals, those words coming across, mm. quite clever. And those messages were getting across. So, yeah, very much. Uh, yeah, he was ahead of his time. For very sure. much, yeah, very much ahead of his time. So. Chances girlfriend came across a needle and soon she did the same. At home there were 17 year old boys and their idea of fun is being in a gang called the Disciples High on Crack, toting a machine gun. a little bit with the first responders it is it's an amazing service that you guys provide it's not for everybody but as you say you know every small intervention matters yeah, um, yeah. but if somebody wants to get involved I mean what's it like I mean without going into detail but what is it like to after a call how do you wind down how do you reset your because um, you know some calls are worse than others some calls absolutely. are better than others but you up in the middle of the night you're rushing down to a scene you do what you have to do. Yeah. Hopefully it goes well. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, it's, it's, that's the reality. That's that is the reality. For people who were think, would be thinking about it, yeah, you wouldn't want to be, you'd want to be a um, fairly calm person. And I think that comes with a little bit of experience. So, yeah, you could get a call at any hour of the night. My, my least favourite calls are four in the morning because by the time you get back from that call, no matter how uh, serious or not that call is, you're back at five, half five. You're not going to go back to sleep mm, after that. Mm. Um, you've got the day job to go to. So in terms of times of the day, yeah, it can be a little bit tricky. And, and my experience is with people with chest pain, and if you're out there and you do have a pain in your chest, and maybe you have a, a chest pain at lunchtime, don't wait till one in the morning. 
to go and call for the ambulance. Mm. And it usually is people think that ah, it's probably just indigestion. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. And then they go to bed and they try and they're lying there and they're going, and all they can think of is that pain in their chest. Mm. And they start to panic. And that's when they call the ambulance. So if you do, if you're, if you're unsure and you're not feeling well, don't ignore your, mm. your loved one or your missus or your husband badgering you to ring the ambulance. Make that call. The worst thing can happen is they come and check you out and, uh, and you're fine. In terms of other call-outs, difficult calls, you know, without going into too much detail, I think when you see kids in distress, you know, young children tend not to go into cardiac arrest, but you do see respiratory arrest sometimes in young children. And I remember one particular call, uh, it was my daughter's birthday, we were sitting there, or maybe the day after my daughter's birthday, we're still about to blow out the candles the day after, six o'clock Sunday evening, and I get a call, and it was respiratory arrest in a young child. Now, thankfully, that child went on to make a full recovery, uh, but you come back from a call like that, and you're pretty shook up, mm-hmm. and you come back into your own home, where the birthday cake is still there, waiting to be, the candles to be bl- mm-hmm. blown out, but you, you get through that and there's a great support service uh, for the calls that don't go that well. Uh, you know, you'll get great texts from all my fellow responders. How are you doing? Well done on the call. Are you okay? You'll have the ambulance service giving you a call. One of the guys, uh, John, is uh, a counsellor and he'll come and have a chat and a cup of coffee. And you might think, oh, no, I'm grand, but good chat is always a good thing to yeah. talk about. But then a month later or a year later, you'll get a, a Facebook photo out of the blue of that kid sitting at his own birthday Brilliant. that uh, he's made a full recovery and that makes it all makes worthwhile. it all worthwhile so fantastic then you don't mind getting up at four o'clock yeah no it, it is amazing as yeah. I say it's not for everybody I yeah. did have a go at yeah. one or two training mm-hmm. sessions and I realised it wasn't for me but my hat's off to all of you that you're in it you know it's, it's, it's amazing yeah before we go into the last uh, bit of the conversation a song here uh, from Counting Crows Round Here yeah Round Here again was trying to pin it back to a moment to you know a moment on on the map of my life i headed to california in 94 and that song came, that album was released august and everything after was released in 93 but i headed to the bay area the san francisco bay area and the county crows were from berkeley so very much a local band and everybody was playing it and uh, i was living down in santa cruz i was surfing and parking car you know I wanted to get away from the painting and decorating but I was surfing during the day and parking cars in a hotel I was the valet you know it was great and all the other valet drivers were surfers as well and you know built up a lot of friendships out there and uh, Irish friends of mine Anne and Neil introduced me to uh, a friend of theirs called Wendy and uh, she eventually asked me out on a date um, but all around that, that I'll double check that yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah all around the time that that song, uh, that album in particular, was very was being played everywhere, and I just thought that song for me sums up uh, a great time in my About life. Here, we always stand up straight. 
The thread across this conversation is pretty much surrounding yourself with the right people, friends, family, work colleagues, yeah. uh, customers, anything. So that's yeah. very much it. And a lot of that I'm, I'm thinking is probably coming through from, from starting at 11 years of age within a, a small community, which was your boarding school, then into the kayaking, which is very much, again, I'm assuming yeah. the kayaking it's tight, is yeah. very tight. You need to yeah. be, because everything, everybody has to look out for each other. Exactly, um, yeah. And you know that gave you, I think it gave you a very good, uh, very optimistic view of the world. That you know, yeah. as you said, you nicely put it, that uh, a rope has made us so many threads, if every yeah. thread is there. And what, what, should, what do you see, uh, what would you like to see changing in what's what's happening today with you know with with your community with the outside community your kids and is anything particular you would like to see changing that could improve what we do to each other with each other um, yeah i think well first thing that people would pay attention to each other and notice if somebody is a little bit out of kilter and mm -hmm. um, a lot of people are you know obviously there's the obvious mobile phone and device use and we're all guilty of that mm -hmm. and then maybe people are probably less less inclined to get involved or ask a question about you know are you okay mm. you know there's a lot of mental illness out there or we you know there's mental health you can have good mental health or not so good mental health sure. uh, so i think to take notice of people and you know you don't ask, have to ask them two personal questions but say are you okay don't be afraid to ask somebody are you okay sure. or do you want to get involved do you want to go for a run do you want to go for a coffee i think looking out for each other i think if i can instill in my kids to to be aware and to be selfless and generous. I think generosity, it's not about being generous with your possessions or your money or whatever. I think if you have any, put it to good use. But I think being generous with your time is the most important thing. Yeah. Uh, give let people, people know time. that yeah. Yeah. let give, people know that your time is yeah. available to them. Yeah. And don't exclude anybody and my old saying, you know, don't leave anybody behind. No one's been left behind. So all inclusive, yeah. All inclusive. And uh, do your kids um, buy into that at the moment? I know, you know, teenage years are always different for the yeah. kids. Yeah, I think, um, I think it'll happen organically because they see myself and Wendy, they see how we lead our lives. And mm. they're, you know, we are a family, we, we include everybody. Uh, we're very social in terms of having friends over for, for dinner, but having friends family over it's not just all about the grown-ups it's having the kids over mm. it's a very social affair it's not all about alcohol going to the pub and all that sort of stuff although a glass of wine and a few beers is great mm. but it's about yeah social interaction conversation i see more and more particularly with couples you're out you know myself and wendy go out for a bite to eat or something and you'll see couples in a restaurant and as soon as one of them goes to the toilet the other one has their phone out and is checking where they could be or what's going on or sure. where they could be be in the moment you're in you know, just be aware of your surroundings and enjoy yeah, that. And enjoy that. That's somebody said to me the other day that uh, you couldn't have sold mindfulness in the 80s. Because yeah. we all had our time yeah. looking at the yeah. stars or looking at the sea or yeah. walking or, around with your friends. And or being bored. A, or or being be bored. bored. Yeah, boredom is a great yeah. uh, um, source of creativity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now we don't. Um, I agree. Um, okay, well, uh, didn't they, in terms of... Uh, 
leaving uh, the conversation, leaving us with uh, some words of wisdom uh, for anybody listening. I was lucky enough, okay, I was lucky enough, I went to a outdoor adventure centre with my son Dylan a couple of years ago in his class and we were going off to the west of Ireland and the kids got involved in all sorts of activities and I, I took a lot of photographs over that couple of days and uh, put together a little montage in, of, of everybody in the year, everybody in the class um, and I put it to a bit of music or whatever, it might have been a bit of Ed Sheeran and um, one of the last uh, stills or videos I might have put in, they were all sitting around the campfire, they were all having the crack and it was a beautiful lake in the background, the sun was going down and I put a little text and it's not necessarily my quote but it's probably a blend of quotes and it was kind of like a bit of uh, advice for them you know maybe they look at this video in a couple of years and I said you know in life we're not the sum of our possessions we're the sum of our experiences and that really rings true to me absolutely and uh, the very last song that we're gonna play is um, Power of Equality by Red Hot Chili Pepper yeah nice tune yeah, it's a funk rock. Um, I came across the Chili Peppers. I was down on a kayaking expedition in South America. I was 20 years old and uh, we headed off, a bunch of my pals, we headed off across the States, drove down through the States into Central and South America. Back in the time when communications weren't there, there was no email, internet. We made a phone call every six weeks to one of the parents to say, we're fine, ring the rest of the parents, talk to you in six weeks. And that phone call probably cost $60 or something. So... You know, at the time we were oblivious to who was worried about us or not. And we were doing, you know, pretty sketchy rivers, whitewater rivers in remote parts of South America that nobody had done before. So you would be out in the Andes for days and days and days, possibly weeks at a time, without seeing any real civilization. You'd come across a village, you'd pop down off a waterfall, down a stream, into a creek, onto a bigger river, and you'd come across a village eventually. And that village would welcome you in and put you up for the night and you'd give them a couple of dollars and have one of the ladies of the village cook for the entire village. And they'd pull out their local fire water or cacique or putchin at the time and a guitar would come out. And uh, we would have lots of moments like that over the months and months we were away. And we arrived back to, we were in Ecuador at the time, we arrived back to Quito, which is the capital of Ecuador. It's the highest capital in the world. And uh, we went in you know city centre we came across this little sign that said Ari Bar so it was a bar you know so we headed upstairs in this place and it was a tiny little bar but it was run by a Swiss guy flaming red hair called Patrick <laughs> and uh, there was a pool table there and it was a very much a, a place where all the travellers uh, as in you know the backpacking community were hanging out so there was the German the New Zealand and then there was the six paddies <laughs> and it was very little else um, but Patrick had a great taste in music and you know one of the evenings we were there this song came on the stereo and it had just been released, you know, funk rock, Red Hat Chili Peppers from LA. It was around the time of the LA riots and this song blasted out, just the opening boom, boom, boom of the bass. And I was just like, God, what an amazing song. Brilliant. And it has great memories for me. Yeah. Fabulous. Yeah. Well, Ross Thompson, thanks a million for your time. Thank you, sir. It's been a pleasure. It has. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Andrea.